Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Great Hall, and welcome to tonight's last lecture. Actually, Rowan's calling it her anti-inaugural lecture. So welcome to the anti-inaugural lecture. I'm Sue Goodwin, and on behalf of the Faculty of Education and Social Work and Sydney Ideas, I'd like to welcome you all here for what is in fact the first of what we hope will be a series of last lectures from retiring university <laughs> professors. And also uh, for Professor Raywan Connell's first lecture as a Professor Emerita. Raywan is going to be introduced by Michael Thompson, who's branch president of the NTEU at the University of Sydney. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Sue, and thanks everybody for turning up today. And thanks, Raywan. Raywan began her academic career in the early 1970s. I'm now told it was 43.5 years ago. She retired officially from the University of Sydney in July of this year, a career of, as I say, 43 years. The NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union, has only existed for around half that time, but Raywan has been an active union member for all of the NTU's 22 years and beyond. In fact, Raywan was a member of the Sydney University Staff Association Executive Committee in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, along with others like Ted Wheelwright and other notable well-known left activists and scholars of the time. Prior to that, Raywan was um, first political contributions to higher education at, was pre, the pre-university counter-movement counter here in Sydney in 1969. And I'm told on, on good authority, it was 1969 when Raywan first spoke here in the Great Hall. O week, 1969. Um, it was about the uh, universities as civil war. Of interest to people here, or maybe not of interest, um, one of the highlights, or maybe not one of the highlights, was that at that meeting, a streaker ran through the hall. I'm not suggesting that we will be, there will be a repeat episode tonight, but who knows. Raywan was am among a group of activist scholars and students attempting a homegrown approach to democratising higher education. The free university movement pursued a homegrown strategy of collectivist education, akin to the radical teachings made famous in, the, in America during the civil rights and anti-Vietnam movements. Raywan published a piece of advocacy in the then Sydney University Staff Association's newsletter in 1969, Vestes, entitled On the Autonomy of Universities. I suspect it is still a very good read today. It's impossible task to do Raywan justice to her level of commitment to trade unionism in higher education. A world-renowned sociologist on class, gender and power, Raywan's intellectual work has been connected with the political struggle for social justice. Her work more recently has attempted to describe the neoliberalisation of education, both in schools and higher education. This was acutely powerful in the recent enterprise bargaining campaign here at the University of Sydney. Last year, Raywan's commitment to the union and the university and university staff was very clear. Raywan was one of the many members of the National Tertiary Education Union who took industrial action to win a good agreement covering our working conditions and entitlements. And also 
trying to re-establish that we are an important sector of this university. We're an important part of the community. For some, industrial action is pickets and strikes. Of course, that is industrial action. It's important industrial action. But industrial action is more than that. We have to have a campaign that gives confidence to union members to take that action. And it's important to say Raywing was part of that part of the campaign as well. As the university management took a hard line against the union, people might remember, initially their proposal was to remove intellectual freedom provisions from a university agreement, enterprise agreement. As this was going on, we, um, Raywin participated in the picket lines as, as expected, but she also used her profile and standing as a university to chair, chair to write one of the more, most influential detailed open letters to the vice chancellor and the university community explaining what was wrong with the way education was being managed and fetishized as a co consumer good. A simple and genuine effort became a catalyst for others to do the same. But the letter exposed the Vice-Chancellor as a lesser being amongst his peers and galvanised much of the academic community as it showed how collegiality could work to pressure management. Raywin's contribution during the most recent campaign also included a public lecture on the threats to the university as a social good. And in a separate fora, Raywan argued for the role of public intellectuals as essential to Australian democratic life. The lecture, I suspect many people who are here tonight were there, Love, Fear and Learning in the Market Economy was a big success. It was a big part of our campaign. As I say, industrial action, campaigning for union rights, campaigning for workers' rights is not just pickets and strikes. That's an important part, but we have to build and we have to build a campaign. Raywin was very important in doing that. Um, it was important in encouraging her colleagues to consider their own activism in the workplace and in the community. Raywin is a colleague, a workmate, a friend and a comrade. The NTU is proud to be here today and to be part of Raywin's, um, of the, this unionist anti-inaugural lecture. Thank you, Raywin. Thank you very much, Michael and Sue. And thank you all for being here on this remarkable spring day. Uh, this is what I think of as um, neoliberal weather. Um, it looks lovely for a little while, and then it pours on you. Um, as Sue's remarked, I'm now um, at the end of my official career as an academic of 43 years, and my first reaction uh, is that I'm surprised to be here. Um, I actually never intended to have an academic career. Uh, I didn't expect anyone would. Um, in the time when I was an undergraduate student, um, the British government, with the collusion of our then Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, uh, was still exploding its series of atomic bombs in Australia. Um, the fallout drifted across Australia, and anything you find remarkable in my career is probably attributable to that. <laughs> Essentially, uh, I and many others of my generation expected um, that we would, uh, we would not last very long, that the world 
would probably end uh, in a nuclear catastrophe in our lifetimes. Well, the war has been averted, uh, but looking back, I still feel those emotions and I feel also some grief for the people who have been part of my work and life uh, along the way and who are not now with us, though uh, they would have loved to be. They include some of my co-authors, uh, Tim Carrigan and John Lee, for instance, who worked with me on the project on masculinities. Heather Williams, who was the Departmental Secretary uh, at Macquarie, an important phase of, of my life, which I'll talk about. Um, and uh, above all, uh, my partner, Pam Benton, uh, to whom I guess I owe the fact that I'm here at all. Uh, so I look back uh, with some grief, but that uh, grief is mixed with gratefulness and also with a certain anger at the devastation uh, that has been uh, wrought on the, the intellectual and educational project uh, in, the last, uh, in the last generation. Uh, I've spent, as, as uh, Sue and Michael have suggested, a good deal of, of energy trying to understand uh, what has been happening and what kind of response we could make to it. And that is essentially what I want to talk about today. Uh, and I'll do that in, in several ways, talking about intellectuals, talking about my experience of building counterpower, and talking about subversive futures for intellectual workers in this country. I start with the, the classic problem of, of intellectuals, the relationship with power, uh, the role of truth in politics. And I want to start with uh, a classic moment uh, in this discussion at the end of the 19th century in Europe, uh, the, the moment of the Dreyfus case in France, uh, where a famous intellectual, Emile Zola, the novelist, uh, published uh, this open letter to the President of the Republic, which blew apart uh, a massive cover-up of a striking injustice which had been maintained by the French establishment to that point. And it's a classic moment, if you like, referring back to the role of individual intellectuals like, um, like uh, novelists uh, in, in uh, shifting uh, the political scene. Now, that's a kind of classic moment and a classic vision of the intellectual as the, the radical you know, individual speaking truth to power. And that's still, I think, an important way of thinking. Um, but things have happened since the 1890s, uh, which have changed the nature of the problem for us. Uh, and one of the people who um, actually first noticed that change was our friend Leon Trotsky um, in his critique of the development of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. He was one of the first people to identify the way in which an intelligentsia uh, could uh, align itself with power uh, and in fact be, become part of what increasingly uh, during the 20th century came to be called a new class not only in the communist systems, but also that phraseology came to be used 
in, in referring to capitalist societies as well. And that in turn, the idea of intellectuals as, as power holders, um, and not just critics of power, uh, merged eventually into the idea uh, that our, the kind of economy we now live in uh, is dependent on a knowledge industry, which intellectuals are the intellectual workers, are the workforce and power holders. Uh, we depend on this uh, view of, of our, um, our society. We depend very much on techno-science. Uh, and so the work of intellectual workers uh, rather than the um, individual intellectual writing away with a quill in a garret, uh, has come to be characterized uh, by massive uh, technological apparatuses. Uh, what you're looking at here is the famous Large Hadron Collider, uh, which has been revolutionizing our understanding of the fundamental particles of matter. Um, but this shift towards a larger scale, towards collective and organized knowledge production, hasn't only characterized the natural sciences, it's also characterized the social sciences. So here's another important place, uh, one which will resonate for all the sociologists in the room, because this is the research center of the famous Chicago School in the 1920s which became the world center of the creation of modern sociology during the 20th century. And I wonder if people who have heard of the Chicago School of Sociology uh, usually know who actually funded this building. It was the Rockefellers, it was oil money. Uh, and they funded it because they expected the social sciences with a well-funded collective process of data gathering would provide the knowledge that would help that new rough and tumble American ruling class to control the turbulent cities. And Chicago in the 1920s was a very dangerous and turbulent place uh, to, to work out methods of, of urban control, in effect, uh, which have been developing ever since. So the interplay between intellectual workers and power has become very, very complex as intellectual work itself has become more collective. So eventually we find institutions like this, which perhaps looks like a Greenfields University, a very modern Greenfields University, a lovely campus, nice place to work, you can see. It's Microsoft. And it's basically occupied uh, by an intellectual workforce. Uh, interwoven with a massive accumulation of, of wealth. And that's, if you like, the pessimistic side of the story about intellectuals and intellectual workers, that collectively there is an alignment uh, with power and wealth uh, in the world at large. But that's not the whole story of intellectuals. There is also a very different potential in the nature of intellectual work, in the lives and experience of intellectual workers. And I became um, very, very much aware of that in the 1960s, and many other people did. This is not exactly my first political demonstration, but it's certainly one of them. Uh, it's in 1966, 
uh, the time the student movement was developing in Australia. Um, and it's the moment uh, when Australia was visited, I think for the first time, by a president of the United States, LBJ, uh, who was at the time uh, overseeing the massive escalation of military violence uh, in Vietnam. And we turned out, I was at that demonstration, I'm not in this picture, I'm actually behind the photographer a little bit on the, um, uh, the grass in Hyde Park uh, at that moment. Um, but that's one of the, if you like, the, the moments at which the potential of intellectuals, even young intellectuals, as a force for social change uh, became, became visible. Okay, now that leads me to the Australian story because the story I've been telling you mainly uh, has been a European and North American one. And it is important to think about the specifics of our own history. Okay, modern Australia is a product of British settler colonialism, the occupation of land and the destruction of indigenous society through processes like that. And this is a picture you know, produced by a 19th century artist of the Australian outback. And a society, a colonial society created like that, uh, did not have any very obvious use for intellectuals. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, we got universities remarkably early, a couple of them as early as the 1850s. Um, and uh, what we got, this was one of them, uh, these buildings along here were among the first monuments, if you like, uh, of intellectual work uh, built in the Australian colonies. When the, uh, that gentleman over in the corner, uh, Mr. Wentworth, was one of the founding crew, when they put their heads together and decided that they should have a slogan, uh, they should have a motto for the university coat of arms, uh, it was, of course, in Latin, and here it is. Um, the motto they invented, Sidere Mense Adem Mutato, uh, and here we tell uh, all the people in the room who have a good classical education will immediately understand what it means. But for those of you who had an inferior education in public schools, I will translate. Sidere Mense Adem Mutato means under changed skies, the same mind or as I used to translate it for the first year students, we aren't going to learn anything new here. <laughs> Basically, we were going to reproduce British academic culture, and that's what the Australian universities set about doing um, through the 19th century, uh, as well as, of course, training up a professional workforce, which was why they were really wanted. In the 20th century, um, the uh, universities in the early 20th century were still small elite institutions serving a local ruling class. But in the mid 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, they grew quite dramatically as a result of a nation building impulse orchestrated by the 1940s Labor governments under Curtin and Chifley 
the Conservative government under Menzies in the 1950s and 60s, and then under Whitlam uh, in the 1970s. When I came to the University of Sydney as a student in the late 1960s, the university was about 16,000 students strong. That was already a huge increase from the intimate uh, institution uh, of my parents' generation in the 1930s. So it was growing and it was still completely public. It was part of a public sector that was dedicated to national growth. In fact, that was why the federal government was pumping in money. And that was why the Whitlam government pumped in even more and made higher education uh, completely free. Well, that was the 1970s, this is now. In between, something fairly dramatic happened which changed the conditions of existence of Australian universities. That was the advent of neoliberalism as the framework of Australian politics and ideology, uh, taking, uh, taking a grip on Australian life, essentially under the Hawke government in the 1980s. At the end of the 1980s, uh, under the then minister, the new minister for education, John Dawkins, um, a restructuring of Australian universities occurred, uh, which was intended to expand universities still further, and did. But it expanded the university system on the cheap from the point of view of the federal government, which meant that the government had to find other people to pick up the bill. Neoliberalism provided a simple solution, user pays, let's have fees back again. So over the 30 years or so since the Dawkins revolution, 25 years I suppose, um, we have got expansion on the cheap. Uh, we've got considerable increase of student numbers. We've had a collapse of real funding from the federal government, which uh, from uh, paying 90% of university budgets now pays around 45%, and under the Ab Abbott government obviously is headed to pay less. Uh, we've had in that period very significant change um, in the conditions of teaching. That's the graph of student to student staff ratio, number of students per teacher has practically doubled um, during the, the neoliberal revolution. We've had the universities defined not as a means of giving aid to developing countries in Asia, but as an export industry intended to suck money out of East, Southeast and South Asia for the benefit of the Australian economy. Now, this, these are familiar facts, uh, I won't belabor them, but I think it is very important to realize that this change in policy settings and the sort of macro situation of Australian universities has been accompanied by a transformation of universities as institutions, an internal change of a very important kind. The leadership of universities, the uh, administration, what used to be called university administration, um, is now called university management, uh, or as they tend to call themselves, the university, um, 
But essentially, we have got a managerial cadre which has modelled its organisation, practices and culture on corporate management in the for-profit sector. And one really quite striking indication of that is the kind of salaries that top managers in universities now get, uh, which bear no relation to the uh, wages earned by rank-and-file university workers, but do have a close connection with mani top managerial salaries in the for-profit corporate economy. Now, businessmen managers know that one way to make their organisations more profitable is to put downward pressure on labour costs. So we have a process of casualisation of university teaching, which produces, the universities themselves don't publish these figures, of course, it'd be bad for um, the advertising, but the union estimates that about 50% of undergraduate teaching across the Australian university sector is now done by casual labour. And what I have been uh, extremely conscious of and I guess many of us have, um, is the change in the day-to-day -day character of working life in universities as an increasing array of control mechanisms, online control mechanisms, have been introduced which structure uh, teaching, research, financial work, administration, career organisation, and so forth, um, which to my mind most of which are introduced without negotiation, uh, simply by fiat, and imply, to my mind, considerable disrespect for the university workforce and encourage uh, in a regime that is supposed to be auditable and accountable, encourage effectively a culture of fake accountability. And that disturbs me a lot because it comes at the same time that the universities in a market environment controlled by people governed by a market ideology, both in Canberra and in the managerial suites of the universities themselves, have turned increasingly uh, to market techniques uh, to get their customers. Uh, that is to marketing in the same style uh, as for-profit organisations. Um, so we have this kind of thing. Uh, I'm a graduate of this university, so I feel entitled to insult it. Um, this, this is the kind of advertising we have. Now, every teacher in the university knows that you're actually forbidden to have classes on the lawn in front of the jacaranda tree. This is actually an untruth. Um, but there we are. Uh, what we have in this and many other ways is a, a, a kind of regime of organised boasting coming out of Australian universities now, <coughs> which to my mind comes uncomfortably close to organised lying. And that's not... <laughs> that is not a good look for organisations which are supposed to represent the truth and the search for truth. And now I want to tell a little fable. When I went to school, uh, when I was going to high school, living in Mossman, um, 
I went to school by tram. Uh, we had in Sydney in those days a really nice public transport system based on light rail right across the city. We called these were the trams. Um, in um, about 1959, um, the political authorities of the day decided that this was not a modern transport system. We would get rid of it. Um, there was a kind of short-term logic at work, uh, which quite rapidly eliminated this rather good public transport system. Uh, what happened to the trams, I hear you cry? Well, they were taken out to a depot at Randall and burnt. And there you have a kind of fable of an important, uh, useful public asset on a large scale being destroyed by short-term thinking. And I think that the public higher education system in this country now is halfway to the bonfire. We are, in fact, in the presence of a kind of crisis of social reproduction uh, of the university system and intellectual life in which the conditions for good intellectual work, the cultural, organizational, employment conditions are being seriously undermined. They're not destroyed yet, but they are in serious danger. Okay, that is my first line of argument. I now want to turn a little bit to the more positive side of the story. And here, because this is my last official lecture, uh, I want to be a little nostalgic and talk about a few examples, talk briefly about a few examples of my own experience of trying to build counter power, um, of countervailing uh, forces to these trends I've been describing. Because I've always thought that critique is what intellectuals are good at, and it is important for social change that critique go ahead. But critique also needs to lead to construction, however difficult that might be. And here I want to suggest some examples of possibilities that we attempted to realize at different periods of Australian university history. The first is the one that Michael has already mentioned, Free Europe which I was involved in back in the 1960s. And I actually have here the magazine, Free You, which we put out, I think, in 1968 or 69. It lasted one issue, and this is it. Free You itself lasted for two and a half years. It was a voluntary collective uh, enterprise small enough scale, though some hundreds of people were involved in it. Um, it involved a critique of the conventional mainstream curriculum in the mainstream universities and the authoritarian character of university teaching in those days. And we attempted to develop this critique to, to, um, into a, a kind of practice uh, of teaching and learning which essentially blended teaching and learning. So Free You essentially consisted of a, a kind of group, what we might now call a network, of learning collectives 
courses, research, research groups, and so forth, uh, which developed around topics of interest to the student movement of the time, and which we thought were important. So in the context of the uh, debates over the Vietnam War, one of the issues was how atrocities arose, how they were possible, and we had a course in Free Europe about atrocities, a really interesting course, I remember. Uh, we had work on, um, on indigenous settler relationships, um, a whole range of, of issues uh, people, in fact, generated their own learning processes around, and Free U provided uh, a kind of setting for that. One of those projects was around class, um, which was not very much on the curriculum in mainstream universities, was very much uh, an issue of political struggle. And uh, in Free U, we developed a research project around class in Australian life, um, which uh, produced a um, discussion at the time Free U was running, but continued on after the end um, of the Free U enterprise, and eventually, in fact, resulted um, in a, a long-term research project which Terry Irving and I wrote up in the book Class Structure in Australian History, which then circulated quite widely uh, after it was published. Uh, and I'm doing this not, not to boast not much, but um, to, to suggest how these inform, apparently informal and disorganised uh, learning processes can generate serious knowledge. Uh, and knowledge that can circulate in, in, in other contexts. That's a, the first example I want to give. The second is the um, People's Republic of Sociology at Macquarie University in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, when I uh, went to Macquarie, um, I was involved in the development of a new department of, of sociology. Sorry. Not doing well with this technology. Oh no, come back. Ah, thank you. Um, this is part of the, of the crew um, of that department uh, where I worked for 17 or, or 18 years. Uh, we thought of it as uh, a kind of liberated zone within the, uh, the existing university. Um, it was a regular university department, giving degrees, running courses, um, giving, giving marks. Um, but we attempted, so far as we could, in that, uh, that organisational context, uh, to work as a collective, uh, learning collective, research collective, teaching collective, and indeed administrative collective, making decisions uh, jointly rather than through the exercise of professorial power. So it was an attempt at creating kind of local democracy within a basically bureaucratic institution. And that had its ups and downs over that time. And some of the people here uh, will, will know that very well. Um, but it also, I think, was an exciting process uh, which stimulated a lot of interesting, innovative work, highly innovative teaching new materials for the sociology curriculum, new themes, including 
indigeneity and uh, settler civilization uh, in Australia. I think we pioneered that as a theme in Australian sociology and certainly um, generated uh, an important centre of, of research on gender issues. And that too um, was capable of producing serious knowledge that could work in other context and, and circulate uh, through, through other um, mechanisms. So here's an example uh, of work produced uh, by a, uh, a research team based in that department. Um, a group we called ourselves at one stage, um, rather grandiosely, the Society for the Production of Really Useful Knowledge. Um, we worked in that research project on, um, on social division and inequality in Australian high schools. Uh, we worked a lot with the people that we hoped would use our research, that is high school teachers, um, and so produced research that had uh, a certain impact in the world uh, beyond the, uh, uh, the, the academy itself. That was my second example, and again on the nostalgia front um, from the family album of Happy Snaps, uh, this is me impersonating a beautiful young professor um, at in, in my days at Macquarie, um, showing my intellectual heroes of the time. And that's the point I want to make because uh, like so many others, I was very much oriented to European social theory and social science. That was where I got most of my inspiration. And it took me a long time to realize how limiting uh, that was, but how characteristic it was of the academic world I was, I was working in. To show you the significance of the fact that I was you know, inspired by European intellectuals like Marx and Freud. Um, here is a map of all the academic journals in the world, showing the countries. It shows the world, um, and the countries are shown by size according to the number of academic journals they publish. So you can see there the massive dominance of the United States, Britain, Western Europe, the rest of the world essentially is nowhere. So we live in an academic system that's dominated by the, um, the intellectual frameworks, if you like, that come out of North America and Western Europe, the global metropole. And over time, I became more aware of that and came uh, to be acquainted with the work of other intellectuals outside the global metropole who had been concerned with this issue. Most important to me um, was Pauline Hontonji, a philosopher from Benin in West Africa, who I think is one of the most important philosophers in the world, although he's hardly known at all in the Anglophone uh, philosophy. Um, Hintanji developed uh, an analysis of the history of modern thought systems, which essentially saw them as analogues of the global economy. 
um, with a centre in the global north, in Europe and North America, a periphery. The role of the colonised and post-colonial periphery, where of course most of the world's population worked, within the global systems knowledge is essentially to produce data. The role of the global metropole is not only to produce data, but also to produce theory and to process the data that comes in from the periphery and then export the results as finished science. And that is essentially the way the global knowledge economy does work. And it creates a particular attitude, if you like, for intellectual workers in peripheral countries like Australia, which Ntonji calls extraversion, which is basically being oriented to intellectual authority from outside your own society, much as I was in my um, um, relationship with, with European radical theory. And once you begin to see that, you begin to have a sense that there may be an intellectual world out there which is very different from what we've learned about in our mainstream education. And indeed, there is, which, when I went looking for it, overwhelmed me with the wealth and interest of the intellectual history to be found in the colonised, decolonising and post-colonial world. So people like, for instance, Saul Plache, the order of the author of what I now think is a, is a classic of world sociology from 1916, Native Life in South Africa, which is essentially a study of the impact of the racist land laws in South Africa and the destruction of indigenous society that was produced by dispossession from land in that country. And here you see him doing the field work for that study. He actually rode around South Africa on a bicycle interviewing displaced families to get the data for that amazing book. Or we made closer to home people like Kartini, an important figure, I think, in the history of world feminism, especially feminist education from Java what is now Indonesia, and Kartini is known in Indonesia, famous in Indonesia as a national heroine, but we usually don't know a thing about her. She was an important writer, uh, a pioneer of women's education in the colonial world, um, and uh, became famous essentially after her, her early death. Um, coming closer to our time, in fact, in our time, people like Ashish Nandi, an extraordinarily interesting public intellectual uh, in India, an important figure in contemporary debates about Hindu nationalism, but also a cultural theorist, um, a psychologist, and an important cultural historian. Or people like Elias Safiotti from Brazil, who was publishing amazing, insightful, and powerful analyses of the oppression of women before the women's liberation texts uh, in Europe and North America uh, were published, and she continued uh, to produce important feminist work over the following 30 years. And these are just the beginnings of the kind of interest and power 
of intellectual work from the post-colonial world that, um, that we can now find and which really ought to be a major part of our curriculum, as I argue uh, in the book Southern Theory, which is my attempt to propagandize um, for, for this, um, this body of, of knowledge and thought. Okay, well, those are some examples, if you like, of the resources, of the efforts that can, um, that, that have been made um, to produce other kinds of knowledge, other knowledge projects from the mainstream top-down uh, university curriculum. So now I want to talk most explicitly, finally, about the theme of our futures as intellectual workers, and particularly the idea of subversive futures. I think there is some truth in the, the knowledge industry um, discourse. Um, there's a certain amount of ideology and misrepresentation in it, but there is something right in it uh, too. And part of that is the idea that intellectual workers really do matter in contemporary societies, um, we we are, a, you know, if you like, uh, a significant group with significant roles to play in the future of the society and of culture. But we will play a significant role, I want to argue, only if we are subversive. Now, subversion is not just a matter of waving banners in the street, though I'm entirely in favour of doing that. It's something that happens actually in good intellectual work itself, as we do our regular work as researchers and teachers. If we do it well, we are in fact subverting established ideas, and we have to. Intellectual labour, to me, is, is a hard form of labour. It is really labour. It is work. And to do it well is hard and exhilarating. It's work that's done, if you like, under the discipline of truth. And I know, I know you know, there's, there's endless debate about the meaning of truth, but for me it is an important concept. It matters. So that the kind of work that I do in social science as a researcher and teacher requires a correlation of what I'm saying and doing with the facts of experience, including the results of the research uh, that, that, that I gather. Um, it involves the work of revealing the structures of social life, of discovering the patterns that make sense of what's happening in the social world. And it also means and this is often the hardest bit, resisting the predetermined answers that our common sense and often our, our reading as well as our familiar social experience give us. We have to be subversive in order to be good researchers and good teachers. So truth in that sense, in the sense of good research and good teaching is complex, it's difficult to arrive at but it's also a necessity. Now, the ruling powers of our world, I would argue, the people who 
exercise the privilege of wealth, of patriarchy, of privileged races, have no great need for truth, and indeed no great need for a good public education system, including a good public university system. They do need data uh, for their stock market operations. They do need ideology to try and keep the ship afloat and uh, keep the society working in their interests. But they don't really need subversive truths. It's democracy that needs truth. It's active democracy that has most need for truth. So we need, in order to be you know, active participants in creating a democratic society, we do need truths, uncomfortable truths often, about hard issues, about the nature of global society, which we are you know, ideologically uh, taught about in Australia in ways that demonise some of the victims of, of global processes, the refugees, uh, sending them off to the fine Australian concentration camp, that's an aerial photograph of it, on Manus Island. We need uncomfortable truths, and they're not only in the natural sciences, but also in the social sciences, <coughs> about climate change, about the forces and processes producing climate change. We even need uh, the truths about the nuclear industry, nuclear power, and nuclear weapons. And dismayed that on this very day, our uh, lovely Prime Minister is currently in India flogging uranium uh, to one of the key nuclear powers in the world which are currently involved in a serious military confrontation. Okay. We do actually, if we wish for an active democracy, we very much need the kind of truths that subversive intellectual work is capable of producing. So there is an enormous social need for subversive future for intellectual workers. Now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to meet this need given the current practical situation, the neoliberal takeover, the bureaucratic organisation of universities, the closure of public uh, debate, public realm, mass media, and so forth. Well, I want to suggest three kinds of strategies um, that we can follow. One is simply to multiply the resources for intellectual work. And here I want to come back to the sovereign theory argument. There are resources for dealing with almost all the difficult issues Australian intellectual workers confront in other parts of the post-colonial world. So those sort of images that I flashed in front of you point to enormous resources among other intellectual workers in Latin America, in Africa, in South Asia, East Asia, and so on. Um, indeed, I showed you earlier a couple of my earlier intellectual heroes. I want to show you another couple now. This is Ali Shariati from Iran, now dead. Um, an Islamic intellectual and 
I've meant to take this occasion to emphasize, given the demonization of Islam that is going on in Australia at the moment, that Islam is the bearer of a magnificent intellectual culture, long-standing intellectual culture, which is, in our day, producing exciting and novel intellectual work. Shariati was one of the people who did this in sociology. He was a sociologist and theologian who created a remarkable innovative curriculum for a new uh, institute, independent academic institution in Tehran in the last years of his life, and also a remarkable theory of intellectualism, which is well worth uh, knowing for the sociology of intellectualism. Another of my current intellectual heroes is Bhima Agarwal from India, uh, still with us, um, who has worked in established um, institutions, established universities and research institutes. She's a feminist economist, an important figure in development economics, who has done extraordinarily interesting work on land rights um, and gender relations across South Asia, and also exciting work on environmental issues. Um, she's really, I think, uh, the most interesting, perhaps the most important feminist theorist in the world today. Um, those are the kinds of resources uh, that we can access by widening the scope uh, of, of our intellectual cultural reach. The second strategy I, I want to suggest is that we shouldn't despair of existing institutions, of the existing universities. Okay, we are in a hard period in terms of the working uh, of, of universities. But there are struggles going on in universities, not only the ones that we've already mentioned at Sydney University, but on many other campuses and in many other forms. And even our own struggle around working conditions um, of, of university staff on this campus opened a wider debate about the purposes uh, and character of universities, which I think is really quite important. Okay, we face the possibility of the Australian university system being fragmented into a two-tier system. It's fairly obviously the intent of the current government, and the group of eight has opened up that pos political possibility, I'm sorry to say. But something different is still possible if there is enough popular demand for a genuinely democratic and good quality university system across the board, and if the staff of universities are determined enough to defend the public resource that the university system in fact represents. So one of my ways of spending my time has been to try to develop some principles for what I call not free new but possible new um, for Australia in the 21st century. And these are some of the themes that I think might go to make a viable public institution, a defensible public institution in this generation. Being democratic as a workforce, being modest in public demeanor, we don't actually need the show, the glitz uh, of the market university being multiple in epistemology, being open to the whole world, not just the narrow um, northern tradition 
which is essentially being enforced by the current you know, counting and um, league table mechanisms. And finally, being ambitious intellectually, uh, not confining ourselves to the kinds of things which will get us brownie points in the American Journal of Sociology, but actually um, going beyond that to a wider, with in genuinely intellectual ideas, to a wider and more demanding audience. Okay, that's my second strategy. And the third is to say, this is also a time, I think, for reinvention. Um, that is a, a time when we should be exploring new formats, um, new means of doing intellectual work and communicating intellectual work. There is exciting work going on with online intellectual work. There's an amazing amount of crap out there on the internet, as we all know, and it comes in our inboxes every day. But there's also tremendous stuff out there. Cyber feminism, um, you know, is a very, very exciting terrain. Just take the case of, of gender politics. So new forms of invention there, but also new um, ways of inventing face-to-face -face venues for intellectual and political work are certainly possible. And I expect to spend, as I wind down my formal academic career, I expect to spend more time of my time in those kinds of venues and, and attempting to, uh, to develop uh, new, new formats for intellectual work, which I guess eventually will look more like threads of some kind than they will look like the old style of, of institutes. We don't know, but that's, that's the kind of thing I think we should also be doing. Okay, I've, I've come to the end of my argument. Um, this is my last official lecture and I'm conscious that this is a moment of passing things on to other generations. Um, and I'm pleased to, to pass these projects on to the capable hands of, of younger generations. And I want to leave, leave you um, basically with, with two thoughts as you, um, as you pursue those projects. Firstly, otro mundo es posible. Excuse my Spanish accent. Another world is possible. And that includes another intellectual world. And the second thought is, even in the neoliberal world, even when the, the clouds are, are gathering, the weather is dark, resistance arises in the most surprising places. It will continue. The struggle goes on. Thank you. Thank you and thank Raywan. I think it's been a really interesting and quite an important discussion, lecture this evening. We now have a little bit of time where we'll take some questions. We'd ask people to go to the microphone and um, just basically people indicate and then if they were to go to the microphone and we'll just try and get a few speakers, a few questions in.
grow and the land for a few at a time. Um, we've only got short time though, so I will ask people to be brief. Carol O'Donnell, I was a student, one of Raywin's students a long while ago, and I suppose I want to ask her where she stands about the tension between regional planning and collegiate cultures, because she didn't touch on collegiate cultures. I'd argue they're wasteful, they are dysfunctional, they are feudal, and that the essence of the development of the United Nations and the intellect and the Declaration of Human Rights is the development of regional analyses and approaches to the world's problem, and that the university under Hawke and Keating and Steele remains an essentially fascist model, fascism with Jews, it's corporate, Sorry. but it is not Carol. the democratic regional Sorry. model which we'll we need through the corporate plan, through the strategic Ray plan. I wonder if you still see a role for the lone intellectual scribbling away in her monastic cubicle and uh, creating thoughts um, in a, an environment that um, essentially doesn't admit of extra-worldly distractions. Next. Thanks, Raywin. Just to pick up on the uh, attacks on the uh, knowledge culture, you briefly mentioned climate change, and we've obviously seen a hugely concerted attack by vested interests um, attacking the intellectual and academic basis of the arguments for climate change, and this is, seems to have spread to a wider attack and undermining of academic credibility in other areas by almost osmosis. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask you whether you've seen this uh, occur in your own area of sociology, I mean, there seems to be a cultivating as a result of these kind of uh, um, unfortunate uh, redneck almost attitudes of uh, you know, get lost or get a real job, you already fighting wanker kind of arguments. Uh, so I just wondering if you wanted to comment or firstly on the climate change uh, instance with science and how maybe it's spread to other areas, uh, including your own. Take one more, and I think the queue's probably reached its limit of the time, so please. Raymond, I wonder whether you could say something about what you see as the link between intellectual subversion and the actual political tasks of subversion which need to flow from it, because I think it's safe to say that one thing that we can, you know, note about the way that neoliberalism has made its way through university structures in the last 20 years is that it's often at the hands of people who loudly proclaim their subversive intellectual, you know, qualities. And the way that that discourse has been co-opted by the forces of neoliberalism is, I think, something we have to come to terms with for any attempt to take the possibilities of subversion, you know, seriously. And I'd be interested to hear what you, what, what advice perhaps you might have for us on that. Okay. Um, I'm in entirely in favour of, um, of engaging in, in regional an analysis, if we think of that on a world scale. I really think uh, it's important to diversify our sources of 
if you like, intellectual and cultural input, um, how we connect that with our own practices and the kinds of institutions in which we do intellectual work is very much open to debate. I don't have a, at all a fixed view of that. Um, but diversifying ourselves is absolutely important. Uh, on the, the issue of lone, the lone ranger type intellectual, um, of course there is a role uh, for people working solo, as there is a, a role in the, the working lives of people working in institutions for times when you were working on your own. And I'm conscious, for instance, in, in my own working life of an oscillation between periods of isolation um, at the desk at home, in the house in the mountains, uh, etc., and periods of engagement and, and collective activity. Um, what would concern me, I guess, is if our institutions evolve in such a way as to squeeze people out, people who are trying to work uh, individually, um, um, to, uh, that the institutions should harden their boundaries to the point where those people have no way back into collective processes except by paying lots of money to a corporate university. Um, so the more we can get, if you like, permeability between organisations and the work of autonomous scholars, I think the better off we will be. On the question of attacks on uh, intellectuals such as the you know, energy industry funded uh, attacks on climate science, um, by and large, that kind of thing hasn't happened uh, in the social sciences to the same extent. Uh, the social sciences, I think, have been dealt with in a rather different way by neoliberal power, essentially by a process of marginalisation. So that social scientists have been gradually marginalised from most areas of public policy discussion. I'm conscious, for instance, that that has happened in an area like HIV-AIDS prevention, um, that there's a tendency for the biomedical discourse to be elevated and the social science discourse, which has been so important in prevention work, being increasingly marginalised. And that also, I think, has happened around economic issues where only a very simplified form of neoclassical economics now has a role in the public policy debates. That I think is the main thing that's happened rather than explicit discrediting attacks. And it's difficult to deal with in a way, uh, that kind of marginalization. You have to establish, you know, not just your particular argument, but the credibility of your and importance of your whole field. Um, in, in response to the, the fourth question about um, the relationship between political and intellectual subversion, I mean, you're absolutely right. And there, I mean, there is a, a familiar argument now that neoliberalism itself drew on some of the ideas of the new left of the 1960s and 70s, the idea of personal autonomy, 
of the, the cre creativity uh, of workers, but drew on it in a particular way that tied those ideas and initiatives into the process of producing profit and separated them, in effect, from the original intention of those produced um, uh, ideas and practices being in the public interest in producing a better society. Now, how we prevent current um, intellectual radicalism from being co-opted uh, in the same way, I'm not at all sure. Uh, but I think the, the most likely way of preventing that um, kind of thing happening is by a continuing connection uh, between the intellectual workers, the specialized intellectual workers, and the other social groups for whom their work is ultimately intended. Um, so building the kind of link that we hope to do back in those um, uh, some decades ago in the work around education, building work between links between the researchers and the teachers, most of us teachers, was truly important uh, at that time. And I think that kind of link uh, is, is also extremely important now. Uh, just very quickly, uh, on the point about uh, peripheralization of, um, of post-colonial and, and decolonizing uh, countries, um, it's interesting that during times of crisis, particularly during uh, uh, wartime, uh, Australia has a reputation for very much uh, censoring the media. And uh, uh, it's interesting with all of the proliferation or hypermediatization of uh, uh, various forms of online alternative education, uh, we're living in a society that's increasingly being uh, dumbed down and, and where the traditional media uh, is, is more and more uh, politically constrained. What's the best way to have like a positive impact on the world and a comfortable living? Sorry, do you mind speaking up? Oh. What's the best way of having a positive impact on the world and a comfortable living? I suppose my questions would be fairly bloody obvious. We seem to have left gender out of the entire equation today. And I mean, I would like to sort of get, there's two things I'd like to point out. I mean, a couple of them which I've been running for some time. One is how do we get the debate back into the fact that we live in a society and not an economy? And how do we get the gender part of that into it? Because quite frankly, I think what one of the reasons we've been undermined entirely by neoliberalism is it's got the biggest dick of it of any particular type of, of, uh, of discipline. <laughs> and one of the problems that I think, you know, I'd really like the co comment on is the fact that because feminism, along with a lot of other things, got co-opted into the acceptance of the individual success of women rather than the change of society, how do we put the social back on the agenda and put the whole collectivist idea that relationships count, and I hate to say this in this company, but I think it needs to be said that there is a non-materialist way of analyzing society, which gets back to the fact that gender has the capacity, possibly, to lead us out of the bloody mess that blokes have put us into over the last 20 odd years.
Okay, three minutes to solve the problems of the world. Gob. Um, I, think, I think it's true that the traditional media uh, in Australia have been, well, for one thing, increasingly monopolised or oligopolistic um, and culturally uh, increasingly constrained. Um, and from that point of view, the, the development of alternative media, uh, online media, um, is extremely important. I mean, I'm, I'm no internet person, as, as some of you will know. Um, I'm, I'm an absolute klutz online, um, but I greatly admire uh, what skillful people are doing there. Um, and for all the, 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 the rubbish that's out there and the attempts at control and censorship, uh, that does seem to me an important uh, extremely important uh, arena um, for developing intellectual work uh, and, and new forms of politics. Um, how long, you know, the, the anarchy of the, of the internet will last uh, is a good question. Uh, but while it's there, uh, it's something we should absolutely make use of. How to get a comfortable lifestyle while trying to foment a revolution. Um, I love it. Um, um, yes, well, um, become a vice chancellor would be my, <laughs> my suggestion. Um, and then drive a Volkswagen. I mean, uh, um, Look, there, of course, there's a contradiction. Um, there's a contradiction in, in offering radical ideas in a ruling class institution like this. Um, and, and those of us who have, like um, some in my generation, a well-paid, um, you know, healthy um, employment all their life, uh, have had an astonishing privilege uh, which the next generations are not going to have in the same way. Um, and we just, we do have to recognise that privilege and try to make good use of it uh, while it, um, and, and that's really all that I can say. On the final question, um, bringing gender into the equation, Gender was there a bit in what I was saying. Um, and um, the intellectual figure I mentioned last, Bina Agawa, um, is for me an important figure precisely because she has been an important long-term uh, feminist uh, conducting, you know, the uh, carrying on the good fight uh, against male domination in, in the world of, of the intellect and her field of economics, especially development uh, economics. Um, but also because she has sort of blown open uh, issues uh, from the, 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 the narrow uh, professional definition that an economist is likely have, to, to have and to show how gender issues take you across 
not just questions of the distribution of, of income and wealth, but uh, to the functioning of families, the politics of villages, the nature of the local environment, the, the character of, of subsistence agriculture, the fate of the forests. I mean, for her, uh, the feminist position has actually been the basis for a, a magnificent expansion of intellectual work across a tremendous range of important issues in contemporary South Asia. Um, and, and that for me is a model of how we might, starting from the concerns opened by the women's movement in, in the 1970s, uh, grapple with a wider range of, of issues today. Uh, yes, uh, all of that uh, is, is predicated on the idea uh, that relationships count, uh, that we are not just isolated, profit-maximizing individuals, uh, that structures matter, um, and um, the, the way the world will go uh, depends partly uh, on our capacity to understand the interconnections uh, between fields like that. And for me, as for many other people in this room, feminism has been a principal inspiration in, in thinking of those in those terms. Um, so I too um, feel that a, a revival uh, of feminist thinking today is one of the more important uh, political and cultural initiatives that we can take and something that I hope to, to have a small share in uh, also in the future. Thank you all very, very much for coming. Thank you, Raywin. But I do beg a few more minutes of your time because we have a very special message from New York that you may want to sit down for, Raywin. <laughs> you know, we don't want any accidents in the last lecture. I'm not in that audience today. I also know that Rowan has oh. no one to blame but herself for the sacrifice of her only child on the altar of the North American PhD. I resisted the siren song of our family trade for a long time, only to fall into its clutches a couple of years ago. And I'm currently immersed in its great rewards, as well as its steep, and believe me, they are steep costs including the non-financial ones of being thousands of kilometers away from places that I want to be. Connell could easily be a last name that weighs heavily on its bearer. It is a testament to Raywin's spectacular skills, not only as a parent, but as a teacher, that it has never been, for me, anything but a tremendous resource. Gardening metaphors are spectacularly overused when it comes to discussions of teaching and tributes to educators in particular, um, but I really can't think of a more apt way to encapsulate her capacity to let, people, to let people flourish in just the right amount of sun when she could so easily cast an overwhelming intellectual shadow. 
those of us who have been lucky to learn from her in some way will instantly recognize the qualities that make this possible. First, of course, her ability to generate razor sharp and original insight. Her extraordinary patience, tempered by an ability to engage with gentle, yet absolutely firm dissent when she deems it necessary. Her bottomless generosity with her time and her library. Her wry sense of humor, born of a keen eye for institutional absurdity, which I like to think I've inherited. And above all, her unrelenting commitment to putting all of her work at the service of building a more just and joyful world. I am not, I know, the only one who has been irretrievably spoiled by her all-round awesomeness in a way that makes me not a little impatient with many of those academics who are unlucky enough to encounter me as a student. Raymond would be the first to say, I know, that neither intellectual nor political work are solo acts. And while her stunning and prolific virtuosity would appear to contradict this, her work is in many ways the product of collective endeavors, not least of which the decade-spanning partnership with my mother and her longtime partner, Pam. She, as well as the countless other friends, colleagues, and family that have made this extraordinary intellectual and political journey possible, are all present today in some form, corporeal or otherwise. As we celebrate Raywin's phenomenal work to date, and that yet to come, I know we're also raising a glass with her to celebrate everything we've done together and everything we have yet to build. Te felicito, mamá. One last presentation from our faculty, the Faculty of Education and Social Work, to Raywin for everything she's done. I just like. I'd just like to finish, my name's Fran Moore, the Acting Dean in the Faculty of Education and Social Work, is how delighted we've been that Raywin has chosen to be a member of our faculty for so many years, contributed so much, challenged so much, and we look forward to her ongoing wisdom and contribution in a different way, but over the next two or three decades. Thanks, Raywin. Thank you. <laughs>